0: Before we get into the kids' sermon today, I wanted to just recommend a couple resources to parents. Because uh, one of the things we're going to do as we go through this series where we're allowing people from the church to ask questions about the Bible is we also, for the kids' sermons, are allowing kids to ask questions about the Bible. So a few weeks ago I posted on Facebook for parents to ask their kids if they've got any questions. And parents did that and they sent some in and they're, they're big Questions. Most of them are bigger than our questions. Uh, And so, as parents, we have a lot of work to do. And so, I wanted to recommend a couple resources that will help you have these kinds of conversations with your kids. The first is called Big Truths for Young Hearts by a guy named Bruce Ware. He's a systematic theology professor at Southern. He wrote this book uh, to explain theology to kids, to help parents explain theology to kids. full disclosure you might want to for now just kind of ignore him on the trinity and read him on everything else and if you don't know why just don't don't worry about it can you set that over there What, what, age? what age I mean it's written for parents and so you kind of can take it and then explain it to your kids The next one is this one and we really like this one at our house it's called Theology and it's like a systematic theology book for kids they've got a bunch of questions at the beginning uh, that you can just turn to and talk to your kids about, it, or you can read all the way through it with them, and it's it's really good, it's really helpful, and so I would encourage this. I feel that like we've read this with Diana and Sophie and even Olivia, and she's a little too small for it, but the other ones uh, seem to get most of what it says. So I would recommend these two books to you. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, now, for today's question uh, from a kid, I think we've got this up on a slide. Why does he, he being God, let bad things happen or make bad things happen only to turn it back to good later? Why can't he just make it good in the first place? This is a great question. Uh, And it's one that's uh, been debated for a really long time. And kind of the philosophical, theological world is known as the problem of evil. How can God be good and how can he be all powerful and let evil exist? Uh, and so as we look at this question, the first thing I want to recognize about this question is that this kid, uh, has some really good beliefs about God and we see that in how we ask the question. He asks, why does he let bad things happen, or why does he make bad things happen? He's assuming, and how he's asking the question, that God is in control of all things, which is a great thing to believe as we approach this question. And so, right off the bat, I want to say that 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 is great, that is amazing, that when he framed this question in this way, he's recognizing, he's believing, he's trusting that God is in control of all things. And so before we talk about how to answer this question, I want to throw out two things that we should believe. And the first thing is, is what we just talked about, uh, that God is in control of both the good and the bad. And the second thing is that, I think we have this on a slide, God is all good and not at all bad. So God is in control of both the good things and the bad things, but he himself is all good and not at all Bad, And so I want to go to three passages where we're going to see this. So the first passage is Isaiah 45, 5 through 7. I'm going to read it. You can follow along on the screen. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west. So from where the sun comes up in the east to where it goes down in the west, there is none besides me. There's no other God than God. I am the Lord and there is no other. Then he says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. So Isaiah is teaching us that first thing. He's teaching us that God is in control of everything. He is the Lord who does all these things. He creates light. He forms darkness. He uh, creates well-being, or he makes well-being, and he creates calamity. So God does good things. God does bad things. He's in control over all of it. He doesn't do bad things. He's over them. He rules over them. But we also need to remember that second thing. And So there we're going to go to 1 John 5, which says, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So Isaiah uh, teaches that God creates light, he forms darkness. John reminds us that he himself is light, and there's no darkness in him. So God rules over both the light and the dark, but he himself, in his nature and who he is, uh, is light, and there's no darkness in him. The next passage is Psalm 5.4. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell within you. So Isaiah says that God makes well-being. He creates goodness and he creates calamity or chaos or uh, corruption. But there's no darkness in him. Uh, there's no evil that dwells within him. He doesn't delight in wickedness. So these two passages, or these three passages side by side, Isaiah with First John and Isaiah with Psalm 5-4, reinforce those two things, one of which is already assumed in the question, that God's in control of both the good and the bad things and that he's all good and not at all bad. But, even though that's what we know we should believe, How do we answer the question then? How do we we respond when bad things happen? And honestly, one of the best answers I've heard, I've read, I've seen on this comes from a book uh, that was later turned into a video. It's by a guy named N.D. Wilson. He wrote this book called Notes from the Tilt-A-Whirl, which is phenomenal. I love it. It's one of my favorite books. You all should read it. If you don't want to read it, you should watch the movie because it kind of sums up the book. Um, His goal is to take big philosophical topics and boil them down so that anyone can understand them without having to read uh, all the big philosophical books that no one wants to read. And so we're going to watch a short clip from this video where he's going to explain this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about it. So what he's saying is that we should look at the world uh, as art. Because God is an artist, and we only really have to look at his creation to see that. And if we look at a piece of art like he looks at that Angel Adams photograph, if we were the creator, or we think that if we were the creator, we would have done things differently. We wouldn't have used any darkness. We wouldn't let any bad things happen. But he's saying that the reason why God allowed these things to come into the world is so that they could ultimately be defeated by his son on the cross. Um, And it's easy uh, or easier at least for us to talk about this question in the abstract for us to say, why does God who is good let let bad things happen or evil things happen it 's a lot harder for us when we push on a specific bad thing or a specific evil thing that 's happened to us or in our lives and then try to answer that question and so uh, I was planning to stop here and pray and go to the next section, but uh, last night we had put our girls down to bed and not long after they were in bed, they did what kids mostly do right after they go to the bed and they stayed up and wanted something else and said they needed something else. Uh, and normally that's a sign that they just don't want to go to bed and we go up there and we say get in bed and you know be quiet and go to sleep and then do that like 30 more times and then they finally do it. But last night it was different. I went upstairs and... Uh, Dinah was sad, and she said she was sad because she couldn't stop thinking about grandma. Um, and so most of you know that my mom died year uh, 59, and so it was uh, unexpected, unplanned. Um, she had had liver disease, this thing called NASH, which is an acronym for, uh, for something that means non-alcoholic cirrhosis. And what happened was she has fat in her liver, which all of us do. Everybody in humanity has these cells. And in some small portion of society, these cells do bad things to the liver. They corrode it and cause scar tissue and and cirrhosis. And that got worse and worse and worse and we thought that she would make it to transplant we thought that she would get better and then out of nowhere right after Christmas it got much much worse and uh, we spent a night in the hospital with her and then she died the next day um, and she's sad about that and, and and I'm sad about that and I, I asked this question. A lot and she asks me this question of why did it happen? And it's easy to go back, well, she died because God obviously knew that she would have suffered a lot more if she didn't die then. And sometimes that appeases her, and sometimes that appeases me. But then I go back and I think, well then why did she get sick in the first place? Like why, why did she have to be in that small percentage of the population that gets this? Or why does there even need to be a small percentage of the population that gets this disease? Um, and I wrestle with myself and I say, well, it's better for her who, who trusted in Christ to get this than for someone who didn't. Um, but then my argumentative mind says, well, then why couldn't it have been someone else who was a believer that got this and not her? Um And this answer comforts me. His his answer comforts me. Because I know, without a doubt, from reading God's word, that there will exist one day a world in which this disease doesn't exist anymore, but my mother does. I know that there exists a world in which no sickness no sadness no tears no injuries no pain no grief nothing like this will ever happen again and so i think that with what he's saying this this darkness this this tension exists in my life it exists in my daughter's life it exists in my dad's life so that we can see these things defeated by his son and That doesn't make the sadness go away. And it doesn't make uh, faith easier. But it's right. And it's true. And it's good. And I don't know why it happened this way. I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, But I know that we're going to be in a world one day in which we don't have to ask it anymore. So... Let's pray, and then we'll move on to the easier questions. (laughs) God, I thank you that you are absolutely in control, that you reign over the good and the bad. You reign over the light and the darkness. You reign over the well-being and the calamity. God, and I thank you that you sent your Son to defeat all the bad things in this world. That you sent your Son to overturn the darkness, to overcome the curse, to defeat every enemy, and to make every sad thing come untrue. God, I thank you that you tell us in your Word. And remind us in all your good and perfect gifts that you are good. Your light and darkness isn't in you and evil cannot dwell with you. I pray that you would continue to make your goodness known to us in the midst of the suffering and tragedies and pain that's going to occur in this world. I pray that you would Keep reminding us that you are mending what's broken. And Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly to fix it once and for all. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay. Um, the goal for the series Uh, was that we would not just give biblical answers to biblical questions. That's part of it, right? We want to give the answers to these questions because that would be ridiculous if we didn't, uh, where we can. Uh, But we also want to, as we answer these questions with the Bible, be teaching one another how to think biblically how to answer other biblical questions in a biblical way. And so as we walk through these questions last week, this week, for the next few weeks, it's my hope that you would leave here not just with a, well, I have an answer to to that question or I have an answer to those questions, but that you would leave with the desire to go deeper into God's Word so that you can know more of who He is and what He's done for us, so that you can understand more of it and feel more equipped to, to share the truth of God's Word with others. And so that's our hope. Our hope is not just for you to leave with, I know this and I know this, or like last week, you leave and say, well, I know these things about creation, but that you leave with a desire to learn more about who God is in this world He's created and who you are in it, and what your place is in that story. So today, we're going to talk about two questions uh, about the Bible. They're, they're different questions, but they're related because they're both about Scripture. And so I hope that you leave here not with, well, I know these two things about the Bible, but leave with a desire to press into his word and learn more about who he's revealed himself to be in it. So I want to throw up the two questions. First, it says, are there times in the Gospels that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples— How do I tell the difference? And number two is, why do we give Paul's letters the same weight as Jesus' words or ministry? So we're going to start with the first question. Are there times uh, in the Gospels that Jesus is only speaking to the disciples? And I want to throw up my short answer, which is already there, but I'll read it to you anyway. Yes, there are times when Jesus is only speaking the Gospels. In fact, I don't think there are any times in the Gospels when Jesus is talking to us. However, that doesn't mean that his words don't apply to us. Um, This question came about because at one point in history, uh, there was a Bible study. And at this Bible study, people were talking about a passage in the Bible, in the Gospels, and one person was like, well, in that passage, it's in the Gospels. And in the Gospels, Jesus isn't talking to us, he's talking to them. And so we don't apply it to us, they apply it to them. And so it doesn't apply to us in the same way that it applied to them. And just kind of dismissed, I mean, really, if you think about the logical conclusion from that statement, dismissed four books of the Bible as being for our good and for our benefit and for us to apply Um, And so some people would disagree with my short answer. Uh, For example, Matthew 16, 24. Might be there. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So some people would say, well, 24 says, then Jesus told his disciples. So he's talking to his disciples. He's not talking to Dan. He's not talking to you. He's talking to his disciples. So when he says this, if anyone would come after me, what he means is if any, any of you 12 guys would come after me, then you got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. But the rest of us, thank goodness, don't have to do this because we're not the original audience. We don't have to apply it. And, and these people would say, well, in, in the Bible, there's there's kind of two main types of passages. There's these descriptive passages, and then there's these prescriptive passages. And so a descriptive passage is a passage that describes something taking place which is pretty much every book of the Bible from Acts to the beginning. It's describing events that have taken place. And then we've got the prescriptive passages, which are those that prescribe stuff for us to do. So Paul or James says, do this, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. And so they're, they're prescribing things, not describing things. And so these people would say, Well, with the descriptive passages, we just kind of read them and maybe try to benefit from them here and there, but they don't prescribe things to us. They don't tell us what to do. It's only only the prescriptive ones that do that. So we read Paul, we read James when we want to know what to do. We read the other ones uh, when we want a good story because any time we feel like it's pushing on us, we can just say, well, he was talking to the disciples. He's not talking to me. Uh, I think, as you can probably tell by how I've been talking about it, that those people are wrong. Uh, I, I don't think that's how we should look at the Bible. I do think, absolutely, that there are prescriptive and descriptive passages, but that doesn't mean that we write all the descriptive ones off because it's harder for us to apply them to ourselves because we have to think more about it. I think we do that work. I think we apply those passages, and I'm going to give you four passages that back up uh, my rightness uh, or what I think and why I think I'm right. So the first passage is 2 Timothy three, fourteen through seventeen. This is Paul writing to Timothy, this is what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from who you have learned it and how from your childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Right there, parents, be encouraged by that. Timothy is where he is because he's been acquainted with Scripture from his childhood. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're going to talk about this passage again a little bit later when we talk about the second question. But for now, notice what he says about scripture. And for Paul here as he's writing to Timothy, scripture means Old Testament. Because the New Testament wasn't finished being written yet. So when he talks about the New, t- the, the scripture, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's saying it's all useful. It's all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Another side note. It's not what we're talking about, but he says that these writings are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So Paul's telling Timothy, read the Old Testament. It's able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So, Read the Old Testament so that you can see Jesus there. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Uh, But more importantly, Scripture, all of it is useful. That leads me to ask a question. How much of the Old Testament is written directly to Timothy? None. Absolutely none of it is written directly to Timothy. It's written to other people. It's not written directly to Timothy, so... We could go through the Old Testament, look at passage after passage after passage after passage and say, that passage is written to those people. It's not written to Timothy. It's written to those people. It's not written to Timothy. It's written to these other people, but it's not written to Timothy. And yet Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training that he might be equipped as a complete man of God for every good work. So first passage, Paul is telling Timothy to take the Old Testament and apply it to himself. Second passage, First Corinthians 10:13, or sorry 101 through13. Paul says, "For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So specifically, verses 6 and 11, these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction. So Paul's referring to events that took place in the book of Exodus. So how much of the book of Exodus is written directly to the Corinthians? or Paul, or us. None of it. And yet Paul is taking those events and he's applying them to the Corinthians. And he's telling the Corinthians, look at these books and apply them to yourself. They're written for your instruction. Next passage, Romans five or Romans fifteen, one through 4. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So Paul here is encouraging the Romans as they think about Christian liberty, and we'll talk about this in a few weeks, he's encouraging them to be like Christ. And not just please themselves, not just do what they want, but be willing to set aside their own rights for the sake of others. And then he describes uh, Christ's behavior with a quote from a psalm. And then he says, whatever written in former days was written for our instruction, that it might encourage us to endure and cause us to have hope. Just like he tells Timothy, just like he tells the Corinthians, he tells the Romans to go to the Old Testament and benefit from us. It says it's for their encouragement, for their instruction, for their hope, uh, so that they might benefit from it. The next passage is my favorite one uh, to use to argue against these people because it's from the Gospels, and it, I think, is the most compelling. This is the Great Commission. It says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The question is, who does Jesus give the Great Commission to? give you a hint, it's in verse 16 to the 11 disciples. It's the 12 disciples, less Judas. He gives the Great Commission to these guys. He doesn't give it to me. He doesn't give it to you. He doesn't give it to Paul. He doesn't give it to Timothy. He gives it to the 11 disciples. So the question we might ask in light of our question today that we're considering is, well, does that mean that it only applies to them? He's speaking only to the 11 disciples. But I think that anyone who would say that it doesn't apply to us that it only applies to them, is not really reading what Jesus is saying. What he says here is he says to make disciples. He sends them out, go and make disciples, and he tells them how to make disciples. He says baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's step one. Step two is to teach them all that he's commanded them to do. Who's the the them here? He says you. All that I have commanded you. What did Jesus command the disciples? everything written in the Gospels. And he's saying, take all of that stuff, take that whole package, everything that I've commanded you, go out and teach it to other people. Go out and tell them to do what I told you to do. So Peter up on that mountain, here's Jesus give the Great Commission. He goes down the mountain, he goes out, he finds a disciple, he baptizes them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then he begins to teach that disciple everything that Jesus taught him. He goes to him and he says, hey, Jesus one time said, if anyone would come after me and be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And then Peter dies. And then that guy goes and he makes a disciple. And he baptizes him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to teach him everything that Peter taught him, that Jesus taught him. And it goes on and on and on and on and on until eventually someone came to us and said, hey, you should follow Jesus. And then they began, after baptizing us, to teach us to do all that Jesus taught them, that taught the person that taught them, that taught the person that taught them, the person that taught them, all the way back to one of these 11 guys who got this commission from Jesus. And so people who would say that we don't do what Jesus tells the disciples to do don't understand what Jesus is saying in the Great Commission because he says, tell them everything I taught you. So absolutely, there are many, 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 every occasion in the Gospels that he's talking to them and he's not talking to us. But that doesn't mean we don't do what they say. We do all of it. Now, I want to give a qualification, because some of you might think of a passage like this, which isn't on a slide, I don't think. Matthew 17, 24 through 27. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "'Does your teacher not pay the tax?' He said yes. When he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And he, Peter says, uh, from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. The Great Commission says... Teach them all that I've commanded you. Does that mean Peter with his disciples is like, hey, go to the river, throw your line in. The first fish you pull out is going to have a coin in his mouth. Take that coin, pay the tax. I, I don't think so. Right. The next time I have lunch with someone for discipleship purposes, I'm not going to tell them after the lunch to go down to the river and fish. I think that there are situations in the Gospels where there are specific applications of the commands, which we just don't do. I don't think, however, that there's no application in this passage for us. Um, and so the question, the, f- the follow-up question to this question was, how do I tell the difference? And so I want to give you some tools to, to do this, to understand these things. And so there's, there's three things. Man, they're like already up there every time I turn around. Richard knows exactly what I need even before I need it. That wasn't meant to sound like blasphemy, by the way. <laughs> So this is, this is a very simple way to look at Bible study. And it's not just simple. Don't feel like this is like stuff that is elementary or below your level. This is taught in hermeneutics classes. It's just easy to understand and not complicated. So there's three steps. Observation, interpretation, application. We come to a passage of scripture. We do these three things. Observation is just asking the question, what does it say? So we're looking at a passage of Scripture. We want to know what the words are saying to us. So you ask questions like who, what, when, where, why, and how. What, Who's in the passage? Where is it taking place? What's taking place? Why is it taking place? How is it taking place? You're just looking at the passage and trying to understand. So we would look at this one and we'd say, well, uh, Peter's there and Jesus is there and there's these, these tax collectors there. And uh, Peter They ask him if Peter pays the tax, or if Jesus pays the tax, Peter says yes. Peter talks to Jesus about it, Jesus gives him these instructions. So that's just trying to understand the words themselves, not really going any deeper, just surface level, this is what's being communicated in the English language. The next one is interpretation. That's where we go deeper and ask, well then, if this is what it's saying, what do these words mean? What is the author trying to communicate? Uh, what's the overall meaning of the passage? And so for this passage, what's taking place is these guys are coming to Peter and they're asking him if Jesus keeps the law. Is he, does he pay the required temple tax like everyone else? And Peter says yes, and then he talks to Jesus about it. And Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And the implication is from others, right? Kings don't tax their own children. They tax other people. Jesus is a king, right? Yes? Yes. Yes. Jesus is a king. And so the implication is that the sons are free. Those, his followers are free. So just be like Jesus is freed from the law. He doesn't have to pay this tax, And because Peter is one of his disciples, because he's one of his followers, because we are one of his disciples, because we're one of his followers, we're not required to keep this law about paying the temple tax either. So he says the sons are free. However, even though we're free, even though we don't have to do it, go do this stuff, and then he provides for the payment of the tax in this crazy, miraculous way. And so for us, when we go to that next step, after understanding what the overall meaning of the passage is about, it's about Christian liberty. It's about the fact that the law doesn't apply to us, but sometimes we should do what it says for the sake of not offending people. And so we ask the next question, which is application, and we say, what what does it mean for me? Not, what does it mean to me? That's a very different question. What does it mean for me? What, What should I do about it? And here we would say, There are times where we should, like Paul says in Romans, like I'm going to say in a few weeks when we talk about these issues, where we should set aside our rights, our freedoms for the sake of unity, for the sake of the community, for the sake of showing something different. The sons are free. However, not to give offense, go catch a fish. We're not going to do that part, but we should do the rest. I think we could do the same thing with the passage that we talked about earlier with taking up our cross. Peter applied that passage in a very specific way. He was killed on a cross. That may or may not happen to any or all of us, but that doesn't mean that that passage doesn't have application for us. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to deny ourselves. It doesn't mean that we're not supposed to be willing to suffer for the sake of the cross. That absolutely applies to us, and we absolutely should do those things, not just in lip service, but actually being willing to suffer for Christ. So taking these three things and walking through a passage is is how we tell the difference. We begin to study it, to look at the deeper meaning and understand how we apply it. And I want to back up to where I said that it's not what does it mean to me, but what does it mean for me? There is one meaning uh, interpretation for every passage. There are many, 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 many applications, which is why if we, we could do a series where we could take a passage, we could take a verse and bring five different guys up here, and all of them would interpret the passage in a really similar way, but they would all give very, very different applications. Right, No one else could come up here and talk about the problem of evil like I did this morning. Because that's, that's, that's what's going on in my life. That's not what's going on in your life. And so that's the application for me right now. That's not your application. Um, the reason why there's only one meaning is because what determines meaning is what the author intended. And I feel like I've learned that more clearly in marriage than anywhere else. right? How many fights are about what you meant? Or a misunderstanding of what you meant? Well, you said this, and this is what you meant. And that's what I said. That's not what I meant. What I meant was this. I'm sorry. Let's be friends again. The person who says it is communicating. They they determine what it means. The person who wrote it determines what it means. And so we want to try to understand what the author was trying to communicate when he wrote these words down. It's his intent that matters. We can't just come to this and say, well, it doesn't matter what Matthew meant. I want to understand it in in my own way. I think it means, you know, whatever. There's a group out in California that thinks that the word Jesus in the New Testament is a code word for a hallucinogenic mushroom. And they say, well, that's what the New Testament authors meant. We should all partake of shrooms and worship God. Like, That's not what they meant. <laughs> and because that's not what they meant, that's not a valid application of Scripture. So observation, interpretation, application. That's how we tell the difference. And I think we tell the difference by, uh, I would add, maybe a fourth step on there. Application and observation, interpretation, application, and uh, community, right? Talking about passages together. And personally, I'll say that as a, you know, taking Bible classes at HLG, going to seminary, there were points in my life where I became very snobbish about scripture meaning and valid application. And Uh, I want to throw this out there to you guys because I think that you might struggle with this too. And that's like sitting in a Bible study and someone saying, well, this is what I think that passage means or whatever. This is how I think we should apply that passage. And me, inside myself, laughing and, oh, that's not what that passage means. It means this and this and this. And this is what Calvin says about it. And this is what Luther says about it. And if they only knew these things, then they would be able to apply this passage as well as I can. But that's self-righteousness. That's completely disregarding the way the Spirit works in the people of God. And so I would encourage you not to do that. I would encourage you to participate in discussions about the Bible in such a way that encourages other people to participate in them. Not in a way that makes them feel like they can't, because you're there and you're going to say something mean. If they say something you know, remotely non-100% accurate and theologically correct which is what we all say all the time. Okay, so the Gospels, throughout them, Jesus only speaks to the disciples. Too bad, do what they say anyway. Question two, and if people disagree with you, graciously throw the Great Commission at them. Question two, why do we give Paul's letters the same weight as Jesus' words or ministry? This one's going to be quick. We're going to go back to 2 Timothy 3.16, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So we already talked about the kind of last half of this. We're going to talk about the first half right now. All Scripture is breathed out by God. This breathed out by God, Paul made this word up. It didn't exist before he wrote this verse. And afterwards, it only exists in references to this verse which is awesome, like he coined a term. It's a new catchphrase, God breathed. And what he's saying when he says that all scriptures breathed out by God is he's talking about how scripture came into existence. It came into existence in a very similar way to how we came into existence, right? How did God create Adam? We talked about this last week. He breathed life into him. He spoke and creation existed. God's word exists because it's breathed out by him. He spoke these words, we have his word. All scripture is God-breathed. This means that all of scripture, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the book of Numbers, the book of Romans book of Revelation, the book of Ezekiel, all of these places in Scripture are inspired by God. They're breathed out by Him. They're all on equal standing uh, with respect to their inspiration by Him. There's this phrase that you might hear uh, when people talk about the inspiration of Scripture, and that's the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture, which what that means is all Scripture is inspired. That's what plenary means. Verbal, the very words themselves are inspired. So in the big overarching story, all the way down to whether Matthew used the or a to talk about something are inspired by God. But we should not think that what's happening when scripture is coming into existence is that there's, you know, Matthew's just sitting in a room with a typewriter like a secretary and God's hovering over his shoulder and just saying, write this, write this, write this, write this. And he's just a robot saying everything God says. I don't think that's how it happened because we don't get that picture in scripture. Scripture is 66 different books written by a whole bunch of different authors over a long period of time. And what we see in the books of the Bible is that the author's personalities come out, right? That's why Matthew is different than Mark, is different than Luke, is different than John, because we've got four different guys writing these books. And so God isn't just overriding their humanity to talk about these, to to, to write his words. He's using them to write his word. And so It's his word through them and through their personality and all of it is inspired. That means that the censuses in Numbers are equally as inspired as the Sermon on the Mount and Romans 5 and the wheel within a wheel within a wheel in Ezekiel. Like All of those are God's word. All of the words in the Bible are God's words to us. And specifically with our question, I want to throw up uh, two more passages side by side. So, Second Peter three sixteen or fifteen through sixteen is what it says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So with this one, first of all, we should be thankful that Peter also finds Paul difficult to understand. And this is like a brotherly uh, and a shot that he takes at Paul here in his highfalutin language. There's things that are hard to understand, but the more important thing for us to see is that Peter considers Paul's letters scripture. He says... There's these things that are hard to understand. People twist them as they do the other scriptures. So what Peter is doing here is he's referring to these other scriptures, which are the Old Testament, and he's putting Paul's letters in a group with them. He's saying these things are both scripture together. 1 Timothy 5.18 is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads on the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. The first quote is from Deuteronomy twenty five four. So scripture, Old Testament. The second quote is from Luke 10.7. And so Paul, like Peter, is taking the Old Testament and he's putting a New Testament book on the same level. He's saying the scripture says, bam, Deuteronomy quote, bam, Luke quote. It's all scripture. They're in the same category. They're equally inspired and they have equal authority. So Paul's letters are given the same weight as Jesus' words and ministry because they're all part of the inspired word of God. And I want to say something about red letters too. I actually have a red letter Bible. Honestly, this week, before I opened it up this morning, I thought that it had black letters instead of red letters uh, because I have another one that's just like this. And I don't like red letter Bibles. Just be honest and confess that to you. Uh, And the reason why is because I think that they tend to cause us to think that the red letters are more important than the black letters. And they're not. Like In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew's words in black letters, that he introduces Jesus' words in red letters, are equally inspired by God. Paul's words in black in Romans 5 are equally inspired as Jesus' words in Matthew 5. The, the simple fact that they're red doesn't mean that they're better. doesn't mean that they're more important. It doesn't mean that we should pay more attention to them. They are all God's words to us. And so I'm not saying, you know, if you have a red-letter Bible, go buy a different one. I'm not going to do that. But as you read it, remind yourself that even though these are Jesus' words, all the scripture is inspired by him. And one doesn't have more authority than the other. Hang on one second. Now with that, I want to clarify one thing. And that's that even though all scripture is equally inspired, it doesn't mean that it's all equally important. Um, because I do think that like the crucifixion and resurrection stories in the Gospels are more important than the census in the book of Numbers. Like Asher had... 214,317 people. Good for Asher. But that doesn't mean nearly as much to me as the fact that Jesus died and rose again for my sins. Like that's way more important than a number in a census. And so it's all equally inspired, but there are differing levels of importance. And I think that we recognize that with common sense in interpreting Scripture for what it says. Um, you have a question? The question? The, the question was whether uh, red-letter editions of Bibles were created so that we would view Jesus' words as more important or if that just happens from them existing in the church. I, I honestly do not know the answer to that question. I, I think it's a side effect. I don't know if they were created that way so that people wouldn't, Recognize the importance of Jesus' words. I know that there are some publishers that have come out with Old Testament red letter versions where every time God speaks, they're in red. I I don't know. I mean, I do think that there are with with the way Paul's letters and Jesus' letters or Jesus' words relate. I think there are. I mean, there are, there are three main things that we need to consider as a church. One is people that would say that like Paul and Jesus contradict each other. Um, they don't but we don't have time to answer that question today. If you have that question, I'll be glad to talk to you about it later. Uh, the two other things are these these two mutually contradictory things that we see, I think, in a, in a lot of Christians. And one is what I was just talking about, that the red, red letters are more important. Like we'll say, yeah, like what Jesus says is, is more important than what Paul says. But practically, I think most Christians read Paul more than they read the Gospels. And the reason why that is is because Paul's easy. Right, you can flip over to Ephesians, read a chapter, and you can walk away with, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to do this, I need to think that, I need to believe this, and be done. Like, ten minutes, you're in, you're out, you got stuff. The Gospels don't work that way. I mean, maybe in the Sermon on the Mount it's easy but you get a story about Jesus walking around healing a bunch of people, you've got to read that and think about that and work through those steps and begin to figure out how that applies to you and what you do about it today. And so we'll say, yeah, the Gospels are better because Jesus is in the Gospels and there's those red letters in there and they, they matter. But then practically, we don't have much to do with them because it's harder. And so I want to say, read Paul, read the Gospels, Value them both. They're both equally important. They're both equally inspired. Uh, And do the hard work of applying the Gospels to yourself because nowhere in Scripture do we see Jesus any more clearly than we do in the Gospels. And with Paul, there's nowhere else in Scripture we see the realities of his death and resurrection for us unpacked so clearly. So we need both. They don't contradict one another. They work together in tandem you um like talking about how each author of the books like it, you you see their personality coming through mm-hmm. like all of our personalities are are broken by the fall so how how does the the fall the sure. fall man affect the way um a book is written so i don't have to talk again um what do you uh like when paul says this is like my dishing on this? Like, mm-hmm. I just want to be like, what? <laughs> Why yeah. is this in here? But uh, is that something that we don't pay attention to? Or is that also like... Yeah. Um, all right. So first question. Got distracted by the second one. Broken personality, Yeah. I mean, so I don't think that because human beings are broken and flawed that that means scripture is flawed. Right? Scripture, because it's inspired by God, because it's his word, it's completely without flaw, without error. Um, I do think that we see their humanity come across on, on the pages of Scripture. So last week Daniel talked about creation, and there's a psalm where David talks, or, or the story in Joshua, where they talk about the earth in a way that seems to think that they, a, they think the sun moves. Um, but we know that it doesn't. And so I think that that's them explaining the world from their human perspective, and God, God uses that. I don't think that's an error. I don't think that's a, a problem in Scripture. Um, John, who wrote you know his Gospel, his letters, and Revelation, has horrible grammar. He does. Like if I talked to him on the street and he talked that way, I would probably mock him in my head uh, because I value grammar and am a jerk sometimes. And so, like his his Gospels are. are Plagued with grammatical errors. That, that doesn't mean that the Bible has an error. It means that John was a fisherman who wrote a book. <laughs> and and like Luke, uh, Luke is 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 my in some ways my I I love Matthew the best. You guys probably know that about me. Uh, but Luke, the way he writes, his um, is first of all, the way the way he writes is better, and definitely better than John. Um, And he, I mean, he tells stories well. So you can read Luke, which finishes in Acts, and there's foreshadowing like built into the story, like like a good book would be. Like he's he's doing those things, like that's his his writing style, his personality. He uses words that no one else uses because he was a doctor, and so he brings some of that in to how he tells the story. Um, His book or Acts chapter twenty-seven, which is the shipwreck story um, of, of Paul's shipwreck. Someone told me. Years ago, this guy who taught Greek at Southern, that like that that passage was used for years at uh, the Naval Academy at Annapolis because he used navigational terms that didn't exist anywhere else. And like he did the research to make sure he had the right words to use as he told the story. Like and John is just like, yeah, there's a boat over there and some motion and we fished. But Luke is like, I want to use the right words. Yeah, yeah. Hey John, that's right. Yeah. So I think that's that's it. That's does that answer your question? And then the second one, when Paul the second question was when Paul says, you know, this is this is the or this is not. Does he say not I but the Lord or not the Lord but I? Right. Yeah. Yeah. What was the last one you read? Sorry. Okay. So, what does Paul mean when he says, not I, but the Lord? I would say a couple things. I think, and this is me, not the Lord. <laughs> so like the 2 Corinthians eleven seventeen one, 17 one, he's about to make an argument in what he acknowledges is a ridiculous way. Like he's intentionally boasting, knowing that he's not supposed to boast. And so he says, uh, what I'm saying with his boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. I think he's saying, like, I'm, I'm not making this argument like Jesus would make this argument. I don't think that that's him saying I'm doing this in a non-Christ-like way. I think he's acknowledging I'm about to do something ridiculous to make a point. Um, the other two in the marriage passage, they're tough and they're, they're heavily debated about what what they mean. I think they could mean that Paul is saying those things even though there isn't a clear command from the Lord on. That's generally where I lean. Like when Jesus talked about marriage and divorce and remarriage and adultery in the Gospels, he didn't address the things Paul's addressing. Um, and so Paul is saying like, I don't, I don't have a command from Jesus on this, but this is what I'm going to say. I don't think it means that everything that follows has no authority. I don't think he's just writing that off and saying like, This is a part of the passage that's just mine. I think it's still the inspired word of God and still has authority for us. Um, I think he's just saying that this isn't a command from Jesus. This is him giving a command as an apostle, which still has weight. Um, And then same thing with, with the next one. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. He's trustworthy because he's writing in under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's writing with the authority of an apostle. So I don't think that these things mean that they're, they're not authoritative, that they're not inspired. I think Paul is just being very clear about what he's saying and how he's saying it. He's not getting these things from, from Scripture, right? They're from, sorry, from Jesus' words. Uh, They are scripture because they're in 1 Corinthians. I think it'd be similar, but a lot different to where if the elders were meeting with someone who was going through a situation like this, and we were just like, the Bible doesn't speak to this. It doesn't say clearly one way or another that this is what you're supposed to do. But this is what we think. In light of what the Bible says about all these other things, this is what we're going to say. The difference is, we're not apostles and we don't speak under the like, full, authoritative, inerrant, infallible inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're just guys who the Spirit has risen up in leadership here, and so we can talk as best we know and interpret the Bible as best we know, but we are not infallible, uh, and neither is the Pope, regardless of what they might say. Uh, the only thing that is infallible and inerrant is God's Word. And so that's what we rest on. And in places where we can't say this is what the word says, we'll say this is what we think, the word, how the word applies to this. I think that's similar to what Paul's doing, but Paul is still in a very different place than we are because he has that inspiration. He has that authority as an apostle. For the record, I wasn't planning on doing a Q&A. <laughs> The, the people or the book? I mean, I think that even though we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, it's still, that doesn't mean we don't know that it's inspired. Um, I mean, yeah. Yeah, and so one of the things the early church used as they put together the New Testament was whether or not books were written by or attached to an apostle. Um, but I think that sometimes we have a really poor view of what happened when the New Testament was put together. A lot of times we think that there's just a group of guys in a room sitting around and they've got like 40 books and they're going through each book and they're saying, should this one be in or should this one be out? And they're just sorting them that way. And so they say, well, you know, Hebrews, it's not written by an apostle, but it's got good stuff in it. So let's throw it in a good pile. Uh, Whereas like the Gospel of Thomas, you know, let's throw that one out that's that 's not how it worked. The way it worked is there was a group of books that had been accepted from the very beginning, and there was a much 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 smaller group of books that had been uh, kind of questioned from the beginning and then there were another books a uh, group of books that were also quite large from the very beginning that they knew these are not real. these are not part of the part of scripture, and so it 's not like they're just going around sorting books into good and bad categories there are accepted writings that were accepted from the very beginning, which is why we have passages like we read today where they're saying the Gospels are Scripture. They're saying Paul's letters are Scripture because as soon as they were written, they recognized their authority. Um, and I think the Hebrews had that same kind of recognition. It was, it was doubted for a little bit because it wasn't specifically tied to an apostle. But there was never, I don't think, a question for them to say, like, this isn't really inspired by God. It was more just that we don't know what to do with it because we don't know who it's by. Um, The other places, Dave also mentioned, you know, some editing, uh, which, I mean, there there are places in Scripture where it seems like someone came along later and and wrote something in. And so, like, uh, that sounds really scary, so let me explain it. Uh, If you read uh, the end of Moses' life, right, someone says Moses died. Most conservative followers of Jesus believe that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. So the question is, how did Moses write, Moses died? Did he just know it was coming? And so he's like, I'm going to go ahead and put this in here. Or after the fact, an editor like wrote that in. Moses died, this is what happened in his life. Probably Joshua. Uh, I don't have any problem saying that and still believing that the first five books of the Bible are inspired by God. Um, the, the Psalms are, are similar but different in that someone put them together and arrange them probably other than David because David didn't write all of them and he wasn't alive when all of them were written, but someone kind of assembled them together and put them in order. And I think that that person was inspired by God when they did that. Um, Another example would be, uh, The you know the story from John where the woman comes she's caught in adultery and Jesus says let he who is without sin cast the first stone if you read that passage in your Bible it's going to have some footnotes it's going to say you know some of the original manuscripts didn't include this passage Uh, and most uh, scholars that are conservative would believe that that passage wasn't written by John Uh, which again sounds really scary Uh, and the reason why they don't think it was written by John is because it Uh, isn't written in the way John writes. Uh, But I believe, and other uh, people who've studied these things believe that it's still an original story of Jesus and still has that authority, still inspired. And someone put it uh, in John's gospel because it fit with John's gospel, even though it maybe wasn't written by him. It could have also been written by someone else who wrote it for John. Um, Like Paul, we know, used a bunch of different scribes to write his letters. So that's why some of his use different writing styles, because they're written by different people, even though Paul is telling them what to write. Um, So it's possible that John kind of told that story to someone who wrote it. Maybe that happened after he'd been boiled in oil, and he couldn't hold the pen for himself because he'd been boiled in oil. Um, Which, I mean, you guys didn't react to that nearly as well as you should have. He was boiled in oil. And he survived. Think about that the next time you read his books. <laughs> yeah. In addition to not planning a Q&A, I also took cold medicine this morning. So I'm going to blame that on that one. Does anybody have any more questions? Yeah, so the question was the the kind of argument that Jesus' words to the disciples don't apply to us is that a thing or an interpretation method used by people who would make a distinction between believers and disciples. I don't I don't think so. I mean I've heard it mostly from uh, from dispensational people who will argue that, you know, that's a different time period that we're not under, um, and and even some probably Israel church distinctions, and so they would just say, like, that's that's part of a different era, that's not part of the church era, we do what Paul says. Um, I don't think they would press it quite that far, but that that's who I've heard it from. Um, and I also think that, I mean, I don't want to ascribe motives to people's hearts that I don't know, but... I think some of it is just because we look for ways out of passages we don't want to do. Like, I don't want to take up my cross. I don't want to deny myself. I want to do what I want. And so there are times where my heart looks for ways not to have to do what God's Word says, because I don't want to. Um, I think that's why it's important for us to remember that it has authority uh, no matter what we want. sovereignty of God, that do they ever apply that to? Yeah, so the question was, when God inspires people to write scripture, uh, that's that's clearly an example of him being in control of all things. Like Because that's who he is, he's able to do that. And Nathan asked if people that don't believe in God's sovereignty, uh, if they have problems holding to that. Um, I don't know, because that's not me. Um, but Matt, who coincidentally just left the room, is going to preach on God's sovereignty and human responsibility next week. So you should ask him that question next week. I I mean, honestly, I think that I don't hold that view, but I think that people would find some way around it. Uh, Like maybe, oh, it was a special time period. He gave them special inspiration. That's that's how I was able to do that without maybe being in control of all things. Using control of that thing. All right, I'm going to pray and then Daniel's going to come introduce the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for the gracious gift of your word to us. That in it you, you condescend to us, you reveal yourself to us using human language that you inspired generations of your people to write down your words so that they might be for our instruction and for our benefit and for our training as your followers. Yet I pray that you would increase our affection uh, for your word and our affection uh, and desire to read it not so that we can be a people who loves your word, but so that we can be a people who love you as you're revealed in it. And I thank you that in it are words of life. And I pray that you would help us to view it as that. I pray that we would press into it with questions we have about who you are, about the ways you work, about how you've redeemed us, about how you're making all things new. And that by your spirit, you would enable us to find the answers. And that we would see that your word is sufficient and that it is authoritative over us. Pray now that as we move to Celebrate your death, Jesus. That you would just continue to remind us of the many, many ways you show us grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.